The following program contains naughty bits. But before each naughty bit comes on the screen, you'll hear this warning sound. And welcome back to 42 to Doomsday. My name is Mark. And I'm Rob. And tonight we ease ourselves back into this podcasting malarkey with our top five what the fuck <coughs> moments in Doctor Who. <laughs> So we're back, everyone, and for those people who are listening, you know, now and not in five years in the future, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Mark. Happy New Year, Rob. How are you? Well, I survived the Christmas break, a couple of visits to emergency uh, later, uh, and, a re- and a re-evaluation on my, uh, <laughs> on my life at this time. Uh, um, yes, so that was exciting, uh, if you want to call well. it. Oh, but no, it was... Uh, a couple of things catching up with me that um, a re-evaluation of my diet and, and, and a couple of other things will, will, will fix, so nothing permanent there. Oh, that's good. My wife and I were more worried about the poor fellow in the cubicle next to me who, I'll run you through, Mark. This is a good life lesson for everyone who's a, a, you know has reached middle age like you and, and I have. The bloke next to me uh, had been in the hospital for 24 hours because he had been unable to urinate. And as we walked in, as I sort of... <laughs> groaning I was walking in I caught a glimpse of him lying in the bed uh, he, sadly he was obese as it turned out because you could hear everything there he was talking to a, a, a surgeon he was 145 kilograms uh, he's a bit shorter than me and about five or six younger years younger than me he'd had a kidney taken out in 2000 uh, he suffered from diabetes they're actually giving him another course of insulin because his diabetes rating was through the roof 26 apparently if anyone out there does have diabetes I'm sure they're wincing uh, suffered from gout, hadn't been out of a wheelchair for some time. His kidney was taken out in 2000, as I said. His new, his remaining kidney, not his new kidney, his remaining kidney was infected and blocked. And they were having to fly him down to Melbourne, which is a, a, an hour and a bit flight, to evaluate whether that needed to come out. And as the surgeon said, we don't want to have to take it out because you don't want to be on dialysis before you're 40. Now, I was lying there in, in some diminishing pain, and my wife and I were just agog and aghast, and it really... Um, it's a big wake-up call. So I've, I've changed my diet, changed my intake of you know certain uh, foods, fizzy drinks, chocolate, fatty foods, and uh, we're, you know fingers crossed I'll be fine. But uh, yeah, there are there are you know you sort of sit there and you're doubled over in pain like I was at one point, and you're sort of thinking about the poor bastard next to you going, if he survives the flight to Melbourne, uh, his life expectancy is in a handful of years by the sounds of it. So yeah, that was my <laughs> Christmas New Year's. Wake up call, wake up call, but anyway. If he wanted to open his bowel up, uh, just let him watch the Husbands of a song. <laughs> oh, well, we'll <laughs> but, and how, how was your Christmas and New Year's, Mark? Not as eventful as yours. I must say, outside of about six hours where I was in some considerable pain, uh, I did have a good time with my family and, and, and whatever, so there was, there was, that was fine, that was fine. It was just uh, uh, a number of years of overindulging, catching up, and it's a, just a re-evaluation time now. So. But other than that, it was fine. It was fine. That's a positive, though. That's good. Yeah, that's the good. That's the positive. Yours was fine as well, I suppose? Yeah, mine was fine as well. Uh, like you, I've sort of gone into the new year with a bit of a health kick in mind. So, uh, yes, I've been walking nearly every morning while I've been on leave. It's been quite nice, actually. No, so have I. My, my daughter, Santa Claus, brought my daughter uh, a pair of bikes. So they've been... Oh, uh, great. There's a bike path uh, that runs um, behind the uh, the estate that I'm on, so 
that's a that's a nightly ritual now we go for about half an hour 40 minutes and uh it's often they're getting ahead of me and uh, wobbling around and uh, me having to run just in case there's a, there's a, there's a minor bingle or accident. Uh, they're amazingly competitive um, about who's in front and, and yeah, they won't give up an inch of the, the bike path or let the other one go past. So, just uh, keep running. They're my daughters, is all I can say. They're my daughters, so, yeah, and my wife's, of course. So Very good. As you mentioned before, just you know, moving past uh, the festivities and the festive season, Doctor Who was screened over the period. Um, Mark, you watched... We'll talk about Husbands of River Song. We'll give it a, give it a clip over the ears on the way through. Uh, what did you think? Before you ask me, you've only just recently watched it, haven't you? Last night, my wife and I watched... Uh, we finally caught up with The Abominable Bride, uh, the, the Sherlock uh, Christmas special which very, very briefly gave a mention to Christmas. And then we went, uh, and after we watched that, and my wife's summation was, that was crap, uh, I uh, decided to uh, finally catch up and watch um, uh, The Husbands of Riverside. So you weren't in a rush to watch it, obviously? No, well, when we were up at my parents' place, we got to Muldura after a six-hour drive uh, in the early evening, so we just sat down for dinner. And by the Mm. time we sort of finished up, it had already screened. And at that point, I didn't really have... Uh, there was There's Wi-Fi at the motel that we were staying at, but I wasn't going to sort of, you know... I had other things, I had other things to worry about and, and do and whatever. It's just, you know, late nights and all that sort of thing. So by the time I got home, I sort of... There was no real opportunity until I realised that ABC's iView was, uh, uh, had the, the, the show available. So uh, last night, I settled in to, uh, to, to watch it. I, look, to be honest, I wasn't in any great hurry. Like I said before in our last uh, recording, wasn't really looking forward to it at all. Hmm. So I, I made no effort to go and hunt it down expeditiously. I watched it on uh, Boxing Day after I got back from a day's worth of shopping hell. <laughs> so I wasn't in the best of moods anyway when I got home. And I thought, look, I'll watch it now while I've got uh, an hour window. And when I was watching it, I thought this story would have uh, fitted in quite nicely into season 17. I know it's Christmas. It's supposed to be a bit more fun and, and lightweight. But uh, I just thought if you're trying to attract a general audience, why would you have an episode starring a character who is uh, very intertwined in, in the Moffat years. Mm. As a jumping on point, I don't think the casual viewer could get much out of it. So, look, it was okay. But the problem is with this and a vast majority of other Christmas specials, the rewatch factor for me is very low. Apart from, say, the Christmas Invasion, which is a debut story of, uh, of a doctor, mm. and... A Christmas Carol, which I think has been the best Christmas special they've ever done. Mm. What about you? Look, you know, we we get tagged with being anti Moffat, um, which is you know possibly fair. Um, so I'm not going to, you know, I, I didn't I didn't overly enjoy it to be honest. Um, mm. I mean, I, granted, I did watch it very very late last night. I th- very lightweight. River Song never really gelled. Has never really gelled for me. The whole. Um, you know she's married to the doctor. I don't know. Sometimes you you, you watch watch you, you you watch a Moffat episode, and you're not watching um, a story unfold. You're watching his his set pieces. You got his characters declaiming at the audience. They're not really interacting. They're sort of giving big speeches about how they feel and how someone else feels, and and it it, it it's all a, a series of set pieces that are strung together in lieu of an actual story. The lightweight tone, I suppose, suits. The festive season, you you don't want to be watching something too uh, grim and gritty uh, at that time of the year. It's, it's it's family time, and you don't want the kids sobbing into their into their into their plum puddings or uh, or, or eggnog. But like as you say, like a lot of the Christmas uh, episodes, uh, very very forgettable, very very lightweight. 
and not something that I will haste hasten myself to go and, and, and watch again. Or buy. Or buy, really. I mean, mm-hmm. if I can get a free copy of a free review copy, I will. But other than that, I'm not going to, you know... I'm not no. going to put my hard earned on something that I don't really like and, and, and respect, to be honest. In terms of a positive, I think River worked better with Capaldi than uh, what she did with Matt Smith. Well, the character wasn't in the... I mean, the way they'd set it up was mm. she didn't really... She didn't know that he was the Doctor. So there, there wasn't a chance to have 50 minutes of her, you know, leaping onto him, basically, and bouncing around like a pogo stick, uh, a la the Matt Smith era, um, which is... I, I appreciated that. Uh, it, it, it had an element of the screwball comedy, I suppose. Uh, you know, the sort of uh, Cary Grant, Audrey Hepburn, that, that sort of tone to it. But uh, when, when they sort of, you know, everyone realised who everyone was, then, you know, then the Kleenex had to come out. You know, just the tears and the, you know, the, the last night together, which was, again, Moffat pulls the, I'll, I'll take something away from you, but I'll, to balance it up, I'll give you something back feel like it's the whole clara thing you know she's dead but she's not dead and she lives forever and this is the last night together but the last night is actually how many years 24 28 years so moffat giveth and moffat taketh away it was good that he tied up the journey of river but uh i think it was partly his own fan wank is plundering really yeah he's plundering his own history uh, we the 80s a lot of fans uh you'd read dwb and a lot of the fanzines and and, and they would be saying the jnt uh, had narrowed the focus of the series to a certain segment of the audience, i.e., you know, the fans. Uh, and that's a lot of the reason why the show died off because of that. And now we're f- I'm finding um, a lot of the time that Moffat is, is, is not mining the show's history as such, but he is mm. uh, to an extent. But more often he seems to be mining his own writing, his own era, and, uh, and, and strip mining that. And I find that that offers uh, diminishing returns in terms of story opportunities and character opportunities and characterization. It, um, yeah. it, 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 it just, it's not quite working for me. It, it, I was watching, when I was watching The Abominable Bride before this, um, I was, it, it, I mean, it's, I've, I've made this point before, I think, whether I've done it on the podcast or not, I'm, I'm not quite sure, but the writing for, for Sherlock is very cold. It's very manipulative. It, it doesn't drill down very deep into the characters. You know, Sherlock is a monster in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, there was the... If you watched the beginning of that episode, it gave a sort of a summary of the last five years, and, and the, the last thing was him shooting Charles Augustus Milverton in, in the head as a way of resolving the problem. And that's not Sherlock Holmes. If you go read the stories, that's not it. Moffat puts his own gloss over it, which is... Moffat and Gaddis put their own gloss over which is fair enough. But they the way they do it, for me anyway, it distances the characters from me uh, and makes, you know... Sherlock very very distant and not a very appealing character in the in in the in the short stories and the books he he's very single-minded um, but there is a degree of empathy in him uh, you read a story like the yellow face uh, and he has a great deal of sympathy for the child the half-caste child so but I don't see any of that in in, in Moffat and Gaddis's version of Sherlock and sometimes I see that in Doctor Who to its detriment, I think, sometimes. I would like this year. Just try and have a standard adventure with no Christmas trimmings around it. Just tell us a decent story, I think. Just give us a good, good, decent story. Now, do we know... Have we have we finished talking about Husbands of Rizzo? Well, another guest actor was wasted, uh, Matt Lucas. Greg Davis is chewing the furniture, but... Look, you, you know outright uh, from the beginning that uh, the tone of the, the, the story is, is helped, is set by the, the guest actors. And when you've got 
Uh, Matt Lucas, uh, they're both comedians, aren't they? Yeah. They're going for a lot of tone, aren't they? But it wasn't as wasted as Bill Bailey was, but, <laughs> you know. Very much. And the ratings, I think the overnights, uh, there was a lot of uh, to do about the overnights being quite low, but generally speaking, that evening or Christmas night, was it Christmas night in the UK? Yeah, it Christmas was, night. It was yeah. very low across the boards and there was a lot of catching up uh, in, the ne- in, the, in, in the following week, so. Correct. Uh, I don't think we can, I don't think we can uh, make too much of that. Uh, I think Downton Abbey won that night. Well, looking at the figures, the, the, the catch-up figures for Downton Abbey were quite extraordinary. They went from six or seven to like ten and a bit, so um, mm. there was a lot of people who were dozing who came back to it later in the week. I watched it. I quite liked it. Did you? Was that the end of yeah, it? Yeah, it's the end of it. The end. That's it? Was it a bit like Upstairs Downstairs where they every, they lost everything in the Great Depression and they had to leave? No, it was, it was all tied up very nicely. Oh, bugger. But, you know, they're all t- having positive tone towards the end, of course. It's set in 1925, so you know the next couple of years aren't going to be that great. The next 20 years are going to be pretty ordinary, so... A certain German <laughs> dictator around the corner. Yeah. My wife and I had a bit of a binge on that. We were a bit behind on Series 6, so we finished the last couple of days. And now I started Jessica Jones. Oh, nice. And finished Man in the High Castle, which is superb. Superb. I, I too have to catch up on that. I, Jessica Jones is quite raunchy uh, early on. Hopefully it settles down, but unlikely. But anyway, you know, uh, Man in the High Castle, definitely um, more in my wheelhouse than the Christmas special, so... Uh, I'll be looking at that uh, in the next month or so, I think. So let's try and start the new year with a bit more positivity now, shall we, Rob? And we'll move into our top five what the fuck <coughs> moments in Doctor Who. So our top five what the fuck moments in Doctor Who. The way we've compiled this is we've looked back at the long history of the program and we've picked out certain scenes or scenarios where we've either been punching the air in uh, appreciation of the, of the show's brilliance or punching ourselves uh, repeatedly thinking what the hell's going on. <laughs> is that a fair assessment? That, that is a fair assessment. I've strip mined my youthful memory for a lot of these but uh, there's some more recent ones uh, to, uh, to talk about. That's right. So, again, we haven't shared our list with each other, so if we do come up with something similar or the same, we'll uh, we'll shout out snap. Snap. Snaps. Another drink that I can't have thanks to my... Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just think your body is thinking. It know. is. It's a temple. It's like a Buddhist temple in uh, the Abominable Snowmen. Not the Abominable Bride. No. Hopefully there's, a, like the, the, the Buddhist temple, there's nothing, you know, terrible lurking <laughs> that's going to devour me from within. Oh, what a cheery thought that was. <laughs> yeah. All right, Mark. So since you let us off, do you want to start? Number five. My first cap off the rank is uh, the end of time, particularly the scene where the Doctor is flying through the air, Charlie's Angels 2 style. He crashes through a window <laughs> and then hits the floor with maximum impact and then... He gets up. Now, hadn't Russell seen Legopolis where the Doctor had fallen to his demise? But no. Here he is, another Superman moment. I mean, look, let's be honest. At the end of time, there are so many what-the-fuck <laughs> moments in that train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> the Master resurrected by potions. The Doctor uh, being a sissy, girly man all the way through, saying, I'm going to die. What the fuck indeed. That moment... To me, it doesn't make sense. Can we forgive Russell uh, his indulgences for his last story? No, not really. Not for, n- not for narrative plausibility? No, he's supposed to go out with a high, not a whimper. It was a self-indulgent fan wank. 
wasn't a, a love letter to the fans, to those people who didn't brace him. I think it was a love letter to himself. Yeah, well, that's true. What about you, Rob? Let's go with the new series one. I'll start off with the new series one as well. The Return of the Centaurans. Oh, yes. The Return of the Centaurans was a big moment, I think, for a lot of classic series fans. Uh, because we all have, or you know, all had fond memories of them. Time Warrior, Centauran Experiment. Possibly less so from the invasion of time. <laughs> and two doctors. And two doctors. Though I don't mind them that much in the two doctors. I know people go on about them being too tall and their collars not fitting and all that sort of thing. I'd just say get over that. But uh, it was the Centauran Stratagem was the first episode or was it the Poison Sky was the second one? Is that right? No, I think you're right. The Centauran uh, Stratagem. I'll go with that one. one. And uh, we've got our young boy genius whose name escapes me, but that's that doesn't matter. Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, uh, youthful Steve Jobs, just, you know, platinum plating his tomb in anticipation of his death. <laughs> and um, they, they bring back classic series uh, monsters and they, generally speaking, stuff it up. That's all right. That's all right. That's just the way the new series is sometimes. And there's the chant. The chant. Our, our, our boy genius uh, anti-hero or, you know, the villain just decides to get jiggy with his Sontaran allies and the dread chant goes up, Sontar-ha, Sontar-ha. And it's been such a long time since I've seen that and such a long time since I've listened to it, but it's the words are burnt into my brain. And, you know, look, you know, the memory does cheat and I'm, I'm sure I'm not remembering these images correctly, but the boy genius joins in with the Sontarans with their death chant slash dance. He does. And he does. And it's, it is patently ridiculous. <laughs> And it is vaguely homoerotic. I, uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, of course, but there's just something going on with all of that that left me, you know, just multiple haymakers to the face going, what exactly is this all about? So my number five, what the F moment, is the Sontaran chant war dance just to look at it, it's ridiculous. It's just laughably laughable. So, look, I take my hat off to the writer. Uh, it wasn't Helen Rayner by any chance, was it? I think it was. She, she's copped a hiding, hasn't she? Yeah, um, Man- yeah. Dalek's in Manhattan. She never really got a, a, a fair crack of the whip, shake of the sauce bottle. But, um, yes, Dancing Sontarans. What the fuck <coughs> is going on there? The words Sontaha, if you play them backwards, it says, We love Strax. We love Strax. That's a scientifically proven fact, isn't it? It is. There's no, there's no doubting that at all. No, exactly. So next time you put it on the White Album and you hear Sontaha, play it backwards and you'll go on a mass murdering rampage. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Charles, if you're listening. <coughs> should laugh about I, that, but anyway. No, no, we shouldn't. I was actually reading up about Charlie. Uh, he's still alive, the old bastard. He is. Oh. God, anyway, yeah. No, 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 he's, he's not coming. Don't worry about it. There is actually a very good podcast uh, based on uh, recounting uh, Hollywood, the Hollywood golden years, uh, called uh, You Must Remember This. And they do a 10-part series about Charles Manson and his uh, the intersection of Charles Manson uh, and his bloody rampage and Hollywood. It's, um, it's very, very good. It's very, very good. So uh, you must remember this, folks, if you want to. Um, that's the name of the podcast. It's very good. Because one of the Beach Boys was uh, fairly intertwined with Manson for a while. Is it Dennis Wilson? Uh, it's the one who drowned. Dennis Wilson, the, yeah. There you go. So, yes, he... Uh, well, as the, as the podcast re- relates, and Charlie, one of a couple of Charlie's uh, female acolytes just rolled up or met this fellow and uh, went back to his house. 
and uh, Charlie took that as the green light to move him himself and his cult into uh, Wilson's house. So, and Wilson was quite happy to have them there because they seemed all nice and there was lots of free sex uh, without consequence apparently. So that was great for the sixties. And it all turned sour after that, but uh, that's the 60s as well. Actually, I did watch the uh, Brian Wilson biopic Love and Mercy the other day. Fantastic film, and a real uh, reminder not to uh, get your therapist to look after your business affairs at the same time. Number four. My number four moment is Perry being alive at the end of the trial of a time lord let's be honest if they'd kept it the way it was it would have been an absolutely brilliant exit for a companion. Having her A, be alive, and B, getting married to King Yukanos. Their romance is about as convincing as uh, Leela's and Andred's hooking up Invasion of Time. And then Philip Martin makes it worse by, in his novelization for Mind War, he then explains that King Yukanos is now a pro wrestler and Perry is his manager. Yes. Look, it was the 80s, Mark. What can you say? Oh, I don't know, but uh, I don't think that scenario was included in the Big Finish audio Perry and the Piscon Paradox, I don't think. So if it wasn't included, I'm really grateful they actually left it out. I remember listening to it, and it, it, it may have been, Yukanis may have been vaguely alluded to, but I, the emphasis certainly was on the sort of sliding doors aspect of uh, um, yeah. and, and Perry and the sort of the, the tragedy of, of Perry's character, really. I mean, putting aside the the J&T, you know, imposed happy ending. Mm. She doesn't really have a great time with the Doctor at all. You know, kidnapped, uh, leered over, transformed, brain scooped out and replaced by a slugs. Uh, it's it's no good for Perry, really. It sounds like you just described the whole of uh, Twin Dilemma then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Perry. Uh, there should have been another way. Vale Perry, as they say. Vale Perry. So what about your number four, Rob? Well... I'm going to go back deep into the past, my personal past. Uh, so I'm, I'm an arachnophobe. Uh, I don't like spiders. When I was a boy, I, it, all, it all goes back to, you know, Freud would love this, I suppose. You go back to your youth. Um, when I was a boy, one morning I got up in, it was, I distinctly remember this, it was in, it was in spring and I, I was in my PJs and uh, went out just before breakfast, went out for a walk and it was a lovely morning. The sun was up and uh, beautiful blue skies out in the country and, you know, just... I, I, look, I must have been six, six-ish, seven-ish, just, you know, breathing in the fresh country air and turned around and, and was walking back up the driveway to um, the front door and I, I, I looked down and, 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 you know, I looked for some reason I just looked down, something must have caught my eye and I looked down and sitting on my chest just beneath my sternum was a huntsman spider. Oh. Uh, those of you who don't reside in Australia, go to Google and have a, have a look. Huntsman. I think they're also called wolf spiders as well. Either way, uh, in my memory, it looks the size of a dinner plate. Uh, likely, it was the, no bigger than the size of the palm of my hand as it is today. But either way, I screamed like a girl, which <laughs> granted I was eight years old, so you know certain things hadn't happened. So I did scream like a girl and slapped it uh, with my hand and, uh, and it fell to the ground dead, um, more or less. Ever since then, I've had a terrible distaste fear of spiders you you know living in 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 australia during summer you you can't you know miss the little little blotters uh actually i come into my office a few nights ago around midnight to turn the computer off and there was a a wolf huntsman spider sitting on the you know on the floor and just just to see them up close like that it just it sends a shiver of revulsion through me they're 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 so I mean, you know, all the other sort of species on the planet, all the other animals are sort of 
I don't know, they're not relatable as such, but then the, they don't look as alien or monstrous as a spider. Um, and, uh, you know, I go out to the garage and you're sort of picking through the corners and there's there's, there's black widows or, or redbacks and you sort of go, you know, they're, they're more terrified of me to the extent that they actually know that I exist. Yeah. Uh, but I just can't handle it. So that's a very long preamble to say Planet of the Spiders, especially the moment where the spiders were on the backs of, of various characters, did nothing for my... <laughs> Did nothing for my uh, alleviating the fear that I had of the damn things, um, and uh, especially the doctor's um, meeting with the, the the queen spider at the end. I mean, you know, Planet of the Spiders is a meditation on uh, you know missed opportunities and, uh, and and Buddhist principles and and all that sort of thing. Look, when you're a, <laughs> when you don't know any better, all it is is about the big bastard spiders that are terrifying the crap out of you and everyone else. And uh, so for me. Uh, Planet of the Spiders is a definite what the fuck moment. Planet of the Spiders gets a bit of a bad rap, doesn't it? Really, it's I mean, apart from episode two, which is a bit of a self-indulgent mm. uh, chase episode, it does wrap up the Pertwee era quite nicely, I think. Well, it is, it is, and again, it's another. I suppose that's a that's a good way to, to end an era. I know mm. Robot was sort of the uh, it was Let's and and Dick's uh, farewell, but I think more than anything else, Planet of the Spiders sums up a lot of things about the Pertwee era. Um, as has been said, you know, time and time again. So, uh, look, it's not one that you should sit down and watch in one go. It definitely split split it up. But uh, mm. there's a lot to like about that. I mean, there's the the, the, the sort of the, the the clear friendship between the brigadier and the doctor in the, at the beginning, and uh, and and the sort of the the the, the events on Earth, uh, less so on the, the the titular planet of the spiders, I suppose. The actors couldn't act to be frank oh they're terrible aren't they they are terrible but they, they they all deserve to be eaten frankly they were terrible and i think the lady was it jenny laird uh, yes i think that's the actress who, who played the mother at her drama school apparently uh, there is an award in her name given out to young actors what for the best or worst i don't know the mannequin skywalker award <laughs> i don't know yeah so and even now i mean i, I you know you watch you know movies like kingdom of the spiders or arachnophobia or eight-legged freaks i will watch them with a sort of horrified repulsed fascination yeah it's yeah but uh planet of the spiders uh, definitely sort of did did nothing to uh to ease my uh, qualms about spiders and actually under my desk uh i got my feet up but uh, i'm sure there's several rustling away as we speak so just not think about that shall we mate the ending of plant the spiders now is quite bittersweet really when you realize that the three principles involved in that final scene are no longer on this uh, mortal call it is very sad when you think about it but uh, it's well i mean we learned today that robert Banks stewart has passed away it's been a horrible week uh yes it's not very good for the arts uh in britain really no it's been absolutely dreadful. As the years roll by, these things happen. I mean, we're just going to have to expect that our, our childhood heroes are just going to die off at an increasing rate. But uh, it doesn't. Yeah. The, the knowledge of that doesn't ease the, the 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 hurt really, the hurt and the and and the and the sense of loss of people that you've never met but have had impact on your impacts on your life. Number three. For my number three, Rob, I'm going to read you an extract of a book, mm. and then I'm going to talk to you about. It's televisual interpretation. Okay, go. Okay, are you ready? I'm braced. For a moment they stood their ground and watched the red-eyed, slavering mob edging towards them. Arata trembled. What should we do, Doctor? Run, said the Doctor calmly. They turned and together with Arata and Jondar ran as fast as they possibly could with the crowd of howling, screaming wretches chasing them. Now, that was an extract from Vengeance on Varos. And what did we end up with? <laughs> Two full-grown men wearing diapers... <laughs> 
doing very bizarre Jim Carrey impressions, <laughs> trying to look menacing. They're supposed to be cannibals, right? <laughs> Their teeth should be sharpened. They should be the lowest of the low, but they look like two rather rejects. <laughs> In giant diapers, trying to look menacing. Now, when I watched that on its original transmission, it didn't really uh, bother me too much. When you're that young, you don't your critical faculties haven't sort of kicked in. But when I've watched that uh, story on subsequent viewings, I, I just can't believe how they can interpret something like that, like from a, from a script, into into that on television. Mm. Defies belief. But then again, it was Doctor Who in the eighties, and anything went where you know they had the directors who really weren't suited to the show putting on their their interpretation of a script and let's be honest it's pretty embarrassing yes it, do you remember that scene in question I, I do I have it I have it in my head I, I have a vision of were they bald yeah were they, they were bald? two balding men they looked looked rather plump they were festively plump yes yeah the obviously the the, uh, the the pickings were rather rich on Varos of uh, of people to be cannibalised. You wonder how they managed to, where everyone came from. They're probably throwing guards to them just to get them fed at certain points. But yeah, I can see where you're coming from, definitely, because it's, it's a poor realisation of, of, uh, of cannibals. You'd you'd expect scrawny, diseased, in, 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 you know, crazed uh, creatures Uh, you know, scr- scrabbling over over day, you know, week old bones for the last drop of marrow. Mm. Instead, as you say, we got plump, uh, balding, slightly overweight, uh, nappy wearing men who looked about as menacing as a, a piece of fairy floss, <laughs> giving very bad uh, WWF impressions. I suppose uh, on the on the flip side, you could say that the whole uh, area that the Doctor was traversing was a really strange, warped place. And that seeing two nappy-clad, uh, balding, uh, fat men was just another another piece in that weirdo puzzle. But uh, no, I I take your point. If you if you're watching, you know, men wearing Depends running around after you, it uh, not only is it a terrifying glimpse of the possible future, but uh, it it is rather you know wrong. Uh, what about yours, Rob? Well, oh, so many to choose from. Okay, my number three. It is my number three is uh, a seminal moment in 80s Doctor Who, one that has, I suppose, left many a fan scratching their head in wonderment or lying on the floor uh, gasping for air after laughing hysterically. Warriors of the Deep is a story that, if if it hadn't been handled correctly, if the director and the designers and the lighting crew especially had taken their cue from the script and from the tone in the script and from the tone of the era in which they lived uh, could now be regarded as, as, a, as a bit of a classic. Sadly, that's not the case. And we all know that there were instances uh, of scenes being recorded that everyone thought that they were rehearsing in front of the cameras, uh, apparently. And one of those uh, scenes, I think, uh, involves... Uh, now, it's Ingrid Pitt, isn't it? Yes. And I did, last year, wax lyrical about watching a Harriman movie with Ingrid, a, a, a nude Ingrid Pitt, I think it was. And, you know, uh, I imagine my 14-year-old self watching or 15-year-old self watching uh, Worries of the Deep would would have definitely preferred to have seen a nude Ingrid Pitt <laughs> than what we got served up here, especially... 
Now, there's so many choice things to pick here from, you know, for what the F moments. I mean, clearly the Merca, the pantomime horse uh, that had just been painted green about five minutes before that, which, as we all know, was sort of bioelectric. You touched it, you fried, you died. Ingrid Pitt elected to engage with the Merca by uh, karate kicking it, basically. <laughs> it was uh, a <laughs> and then uh, a kick to the face. And then she's dead. Now, that's my memory of it. It's been quite some time since I've watched it. But the 70s was a big era for Kung Fu, Bruce Lee. Kung Fu, wasn't it? With David Carradine as the... Yes. That's right. Uh, so, you know, and we, we, we all loved a bit of Hong Kong cinema and, and that sort of thing. But the... in As a watcher, what are you doing, Ingrid? And then there was no one there to say, let's, um, let's just reshoot that. Uh, and then from a sort of a story point of view, seeing people dropping like flies who had touched it, the Merca, why in God's name would you just run and kick it? It just, you know, you're just full of disbelief watching it. So, uh, look, I take my hat off at a chutzpah, but what was going on there? It's like that song by uh, Carl Douglas, isn't it? Uh, you're more of a music man than me. Uh, who's Carl Douglas and what was he singing? Oh, of course. Now, I have watched that clip. I actually showed my daughter it a couple of days ago because on YouTube, you know how sometimes it gives you selections of what to watch? (laughs) For some bizarre reason, it dragged that up for me. And I sat there laughing my head off. Ingrid does this little step to the left, step to the right, and then hands motion. (laughs) And then does a, a battle cry, which I think... It's from a Smurf, and then just parades into this murka. And I showed my daughter this, and she said, "What the heck is this?" So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so Ingrid actually sized the creature up. It wasn't a character's moment of panic. It's Ingrid going, "I'll balk to the left, and then I'll balk to the right, <laughs> and I'm going to summon my chi, and then I'm just going to go brawl Bruce Lee on it." Oh God! <laughs> it's bad. If you read the uh, the, the troubled history mm. of that story, they lost uh, two weeks of uh, production or pre-production on it because Mrs. Thatcher in '83, I think, called a snap mm. election, and so it was, they were scrabbling for resources. Uh, apparently, they they gave Jane Tear the option of actually not doing that story mm. altogether. Uh, maybe he would have been wiser not to have uh, let it proceed and start the season with the awakening. I like the premise of Warriors of the Deep. Its its, it's execution lets it down in some large part, especially the visuals. I mean, the, uh, I was going to say Centaurans. The sea devils, uh, their heads weren't... They needed to, <laughs> to, the they needed to be glued down, folks. A bit of Velcro, perhaps. Uh, maybe some shoelaces. I don't know. Anything to keep their heads from wobbling. The Merca was a, a, a disaster. Uh, mm. the the wholesale death at the end I appreciated because um, that's just me and 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 the the fifth doctors there should have been another way is something is a, is a line that I love dredging up uh, here and there so but yeah it could have been far far better than what it was number two my number two is the last of the time lords when the doctor was restored to normal size via the power of prayer oh. 
Sweet Jesus. In series three, I think the run of episodes from Human Nature, Family of Blood, Utopia, Sound of Drums, brilliant. And then you get to that episode when the Doctor is reduced to the size of... And he looks exactly like Dobie out of Harry Potter. And I sort of said to myself, it can't be as bad as what I remember. Because to be honest, I've never gone back and watched this thing again. I've never done it. And (laughs) I thought, let's just get some edited highlights on YouTube. So I did that. And, you know, they all start looking in the air. And you all start chanting Doctor. Now... It doesn't make sense because when she's saying to people, okay, you got to chant the name Doctor at this time, how can you take into consideration all the different time zones? Mm. And when they're cutting to different nationalities allegedly around the world, they're all in bloody daylight. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and again, it's more of that uh, Doctor who uh, is resolved with magic mm-hmm. and not with science. And it had myself, and probably also Christopher Hayes bitch me saying, what the fuck? Yeah, I mean, it's faulty in its conception, it's faulty in its execution, as you say. It's it's, it's another um, step along the path of godhood for the Doctor, really, isn't it? From an atheist. Well, yes. Yes, so it's just weak storytelling. When you've written yourself into a corner and you don't know how to get out of it, the tip is don't write yourself into a corner. Mm. It's think about what you're trying to achieve and what you're trying to put you know put before the audience and this as you say this wasn't the way to go this wasn't the way to go because it just you just you as you you want a certain level of believability oh, look i know it's doctor who and believability the two sets of words don't go together i understand that but even so you've got a baseline with doctor who and and and, and you know uh, m- Magic on a grand scale like that, you know, sort of converting belief into into some sort of powerful force to bring the Doctor back. Um, it, it breaks the bounds of, of believability. It's it's just something the show shouldn't do. But the show egregiously keeps on doing it. Every year. What about you, Rob? Well, so we go back to the happy hunting ground of the classic series. I'm surprised, actually, that we haven't uh, picked um, so many cliffhangers. But this one is a definite cliffhanger, and it's a great cliffhanger. Now, during the 80s, um, as I was growing up and you know becoming a teenager, I, I began to realise that the show that I was watching wasn't necessarily the show that I grew up with as a, as a, as a boy in the 70s. And it, it had a... Whether I was growing away from the show, or the show was growing away from me, or it just... I, I was missing the sort of the, the, the early Tom Baker scares and spills and frights and all that sort of thing. But Doctor Who didn't quite have it for me I suppose but I was still watching and that was fine and uh, the Davison era sort of exemplified that a little bit but um, I still watched it and then we come to Caves and immediately the, the very first you know the very first scene or set of scenes it feels different it feels like something that I could enjoy and you're watching it and you're seeing the Doctor and Perry become gradually enmeshed in uh, a political power play really and you're thinking, well, this is really different. This is this is different from what I was used to, uh, you know, in the in the in the mid to late seventies. But it's something that I'm actually enjoying. And looking back at it with back at it with hindsight, there's a certain level of uh, adultness to the storytelling that I sort of um, had echoes for me back into you know the the Baker's first, second, and third seasons. And it all leads up the doctor, you know, is being, you know, misunderstood again, misinterpreted. No one will listen to him, um, and he's growing increasingly frustrated. And they're, you know, summarily tried. And 
they're sentenced to death. And they're sitting in the cell and and the, the, the doctor doesn't come up with this crazy plan to escape or anything like that. There's no sort of coincidences that allow him and Perry to escape. They're sitting there mm. contemplating the fact that they're going to be killed. They're going to be executed. And uh, and then they, the, the, you know, there's that cut. There's that cut that we sort of now can look back to and go, oh, oh okay, this is the moment where they're sort of replaced. But, you know... I was a, a, a juvenile newbie watcher. The, the sort of the language, the dialogue that the, the, the director was having with the audience, I wasn't okay with that. And uh, so we, they're let out and they're tied up to the posts or whatever. And, you know, the, uh, the guards come up with their, their, their rifles and they're shot. And I'm sitting there watching this thinking, what just happened? How the hell are they going to get out of this? Mm. I've just—it's like watching a magician's trick. You are watching it intently. You are looking for the 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 moment where the the, the, the trick actually occurs, where the the, the 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 moment of illusion happens, and you can't see it. It's so seamless, and you're left a applauding uh, the the artistry, but b going, oh my god, what do they do? And that was my what the fuck. Um, with the cliffhanger the caves of Androzani episode one just an absolute barnstorming into that episode and really sets you up for the rest of the story is case of Androzani overrated those people who say that have no appreciation no feel no just no sense of what classic series Doctor Who is all about and can do do you think Eric uh, trying to replicate it the year after I mean, he obviously failed miserably, didn't he? Oh, I disagree. I, really? I like Re- I like Revelation quite a lot. I like Revelation, but this rest of the time of that series. Oh, for the, for that particular yeah. season. Yeah. Um, yes. Well, it again, uh, faulty in conception. I'm going to you know copy Robert Holmes and and faulty in execution. It just mm. Um, mm. didn't. He, he. It's you know I I I. I as some people know, I, I write short fiction and, and and that sort of thing, and I have my favourite authors, and sometimes. I've tried to emulate uh, their writing style and failed miserably because yeah. they have their writing style and it's their, their life experiences and persona that informs their writing. That's I'm not them and clearly they're not me. And for Saywood to try to do the same, to try to have the same Holmesian tropes um, was a mistake. It, did, it, it, it was a mistake for the series and it didn't do anything for Saywood himself. It wasn't fair on himself to try and emulate someone else. Let Saywood be Saywood, really. The Holmesian traits you talk about had charm, where mm. in that season it was severely lacking in charm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think season 22 is uh, uh, underrated by a lot of people, but I, I can definitely see its flaws, and I think those flaws can be sheeted home to JNT's lack of storytelling. Now, Saywood's... Uh, failure to give himself a, his own self a go. Mm. Interestingly enough, that uh, for the Sherry's Jack role, that uh, David Bowie was going to be considered for that. Was that right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. That would have been interesting, certainly. Absolutely, yeah. One. Just imagine, Rob, put yourself in the in the in the shoes of young Billy, age five or six, at home in the UK and on a cold November October evening in 1966. Mm. Watching the Tenth Planet Part Four. Oh yes. And all of a sudden, the man he he knows as a doctor, all of a sudden, just falls on the ground and promptly changes into somebody else. Now you've got to remember, back in the '60s, the transition of Hartnell to Troughton was maybe a three-line column in the back of the paper, as opposed to what's happening now with uh, Doctor Who confidentials and 
live announcements and things like that. So can you imagine that scenario being played out where you're at home watching your favourite show, all of a sudden the lead actor has changed into somebody else? That is, the show's brilliant. What the fuck, I mean, ever. It's a what the fuck that keeps on giving. Well, it is. I mean, it, it, it ensured the show's longevity, hmm. for starters. And you can imagine, I mean, I, I don't know, I haven't had a chance to check, but... Um, or even bothered to check what sort of I mean there would have been an announcement in the papers that William Hartnell had left the series to be replaced by Patrick Troughton actually I do remember there is an article that I've seen yeah. about that but as you say the, the sort of the, 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 the fanfare that accompanies it now it's, it's, it's sort of like a Roman bread a Roman circus really with you know all it needs is elephants and slaves and, and Julius Caesar parading down uh, <laughs> down, down the, the main streets of Rome to uh you're giving him ideas now for the Capaldi exit. <laughs> In terms of a virtual triumph. Yeah. But um, and and of course, uh, never to be repeated on English television or British television. Uh, and no. you know, um, never to be seen again effectively until sometime in the '90s when those eight millimeter clips emerged. But even even that doesn't give you, I suppose, a sense of um, how it would have felt uh, back then. I mean, you you had to be alive back then. To appreciate it, to have grown up with Doctor Who, with William Hartnell, and to and I know I wonder what the playgrounds of, of of Britain were like on the Monday afterwards, with kids just you know like well the stiff the, the, the stiff British upper lip I'm sure was still in play even though the empire had basically collapsed, but there must have been some children who were just out the back sobbing quietly to themselves that uh, B- Billy Hartnell was out the door and this strange mop head fellow who looked vaguely like a beetle. Uh, had taken his place. And especially the first few weeks, Power of the Daleks and the Highlanders uh, probably didn't uh, endear himself to some of those uh, viewers. I mean, if you look at the... Um, it's not the AI, it's the, 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 the viewer reports. I remember reading mm. online and they're very quite disparaging towards uh, Trout and then his interpretation. But uh, Look, as we, know, as, as we know, genius is not always immediately recognised. Correct. That's exactly right. But actually, on that point, and on mm. that point, I mean, I, as we've discussed before, I, I listened to the Power soundtrack. Troughton doesn't seem that out there. No, he's really. not. There's those no. few minutes at the start where he's sort of coming to terms with what's happened. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I suppose it might have been. Again, it's the visual element that we're sadly lacking. So it's hard to say how he looked, how his facial manners, uh, movements were, and, and, and hand movements, all that sort of thing. So. Hard to say. When, uh, yeah. in your eyes, uh, mm. when do you think that uh, Troughton settled down? I mean, everybody says it's the moon base, mm. and I'd probably say, yes, I agree with that. But I think his fully formed character is really uh, faceless ones onwards. Is um, Underwater Menace before or after Moon Base? It's before. So he's still doing a bit of zany stuff, and same with the okay. Highlanders. Look, yeah. when I saw Power of the Daleks at that screening party, it was, uh, it really... <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Did I they guessed. did they serve any light refreshments? <laughs> no, they took my mobile phone. Oh. <laughs> Can you imagine? Let's 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 indulge ourselves. Let's indulge ourselves for a minute before we come to mine. This is our own Omni River fan wank. Can you imagine? Assuming there was a screening mark. Okay. Well, so Dave Hoskins said there was. Dave Hoskins said there was in our uh, interview with him last year, and I yeah. urge everyone to go back and have a, a close listen to that. Yeah. Assuming there was a screening. And, uh, you know, assuming there was a screening, mm. what would the mood have been like? Assuming, uh, assuming it actually happened, you would have had uh, luminaries of Doctor Who, a fandom perhaps. Phil himself may have been there as well. 
he may have given a potted uh, history of you know what he had to do to find it and bring it back to the UK. Can you imagine the atmosphere? Would it have just been people high-fiving each other and, and punching the air and doing cartwheels and backflips as Troughton emerges? There wouldn't have been a, or a dry seat in the house. No, no. And, you know, would it have been light refreshments? Would it have been tea and biscuits? Or would it have been some, some of the hardest stuff? The schnapps that I can no longer have, I reckon it would be for the Coke with the mirror. With the... <laughs> <laughs> Not the now, newspaper, the mirror and the razor blade. Yeah. Now, yeah. of course, we, you know, we just... We don't know that any screening occurred and we don't know who may have attended had it actually occurred at all. Going back to uh, the 10th planet, because really the Doctor's departure is not foreshadowed in any way he's no. missing for part three because yes. uh, he's uh ill mm. but really there's no sense of impending disaster or no. a- anything like that i mean you know we also logopolis has got a quite a a, a funeral tone to it mm-hmm. and also with planet the spiders mm. uh there was a, a long lead up because the announcement was uh, made quite uh early on just imagine that back in the 60s you're watching it all of a sudden bang do you remember when the the eight millimeter clips were found and made available what you thought of the actual sequence itself because the restoration team did a really bang up job of recreating that didn't they yeah i saw them in because that was they were filmed in australia weren't they on their yes. uh, australian repeat screenings i believe not the initial run but on the repeats because uh the abc repeated them quite heavily in the 60s and also the 70s and 80s so mm. uh doctor who that is not uh... so yeah i was seeing them and just these tantalizing glimpses of stories like you know galaxy 4 and mundane task of vicky cutting stephen's hair mm. it got you all excited and uh, the myth makers doesn't really show you much uh, but the Tenth Planet stuff, definitely, you know, the, the regeneration build-up. Mm. Uh, but as you said, the, the restoration team did a great job combining that footage and the, and the power footage together to get some sort of sense of what that scene looked like. Mark, did you just say power footage? Don't don't open a can of worms. No, but I will open a can of film. <laughs> um, it, it, just, it makes you wonder or just sort of uh, theorise if they'd actually turned up an 8mm copy of the entire episode but of that quality because the quality is quite ropey when you think about it yeah um, I'm, you know you sort of sometimes wonder would they have released it uh, in that quality if they had the full 25 minutes I suppose they would have wouldn't they they would have done something with yeah. it I mean nothing you know something's better than nothing right but uh, they would have maybe tacked it on to say the 10th planet DVD mm. as an extra yes yes so yeah, that, that's actually that's a very good number one, Mark. I, I, I like that because it, it it shakes the foundations of the of the series, doesn't it? Absolutely, and it's a gift that keeps on giving. Exactly. Exactly. Well, right, yeah, Rob. What is your your number one? Drum roll. Well, no. Well, drum roll, please. Perhaps. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, everyone knows that I like a bit of horror. Everyone knows that I like a bit of uh, early Tom Baker. Everybody knows you like horror, Fang Rock. It, this is not horror, though. This is not <laughs> horror. Fortunately, I could have gone actually with. Uh, with uh, the, the, the our first or you know the, what happened to Killer in uh, in Seeds of Doom because mm. uh, that is that is definitely up there with uh, what is going on, but uh, I've gone back to an earlier episode. I've gone back to something that um, for my very young mind presented something that filled me with dread, filled me with just an unthinking horror about this character's fate that was rapidly overwhelming him. The scene in the Ark in Space, which I 
believe is the is it the cliffhanger for episode two where we see Noah in a control room uh, sort of clutching his arm he's back to the to the uh, to the to the screen and he's I think he's on the on the radio with someone and he turns around and his arm one of his arms is wrapped in as we now know green bubble wrap oh you wrecked it for me but <laughs> spoilers people but that moment where you suddenly realize that this ep- this story is playing for keeps that this character is being consumed from within that his dna is well i didn't know that at the time but you can say that now that his very being is being rewritten mm. that his mind is being taken over that what makes noah noah the the essence of humanity that is noah is being destroyed is being devoured slowly but inexorably bit by bit by bit and then at the end of the process noah will no longer exist his consciousness will be submerged he will have given up his allegiance and humanity or allegiance to humanity and his very humanity as the wirren takes him over it you know it it, it predates aliens it, it predates so many you know stories like the seeds of doom Mm. that watching that's that that very scene where he is thumping you know the the console i think with his, with his arm and he's in he's either in agony or fear or terror or all of that that is just the the classic what the fuck <coughs> moment for me for doctor who i think was that the mutants had touches of the uh it was implied that was happening to the uh the natives but that's their part of their natural life cycle this is something imposed exactly. from outside yeah and the way it's done here it's full-on horror and it works really really well and the, the to think that uh they actually recorded the scene where noah is pleading for someone to kill him and they cut it oh just gives you a sense of what they were trying to convey with the transformation. Gee, it's a good story, isn't it? Oh, it's a very good story. I mean, you, you could put Robot aside. This is the beginning of the of that phase of the Colin, uh, Colin Baker, the Tom Baker era. Don't mix those up. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Grow comparisons. Yeah, the actor left on his own accord, or did he? Uh, did any of them, really? Troughton? Took his bat and went home. Pertwee came out and said they didn't offer him enough money. Tom Baker threatened to resign at the end of 1617 and it was only accepted <laughs> it, was, it was a bluff it went wrong Davo regrets going yes he wish he did one more year well Colin Baker well Colin Baker was sort of had no say in it just gently just gently shown the door wasn't he and McCoy wasn't even shown the door the door just <laughs> never closed the, the door was just there, there and nothing really happened and began well well we all know what happened with McGann there was no option there Jenner and Eccleston oh, well Eccleston pulled the pin I think of all of them Tennant Eccleston was the was the one was the, the one who uh, traipsed out gaily laughing merrily thinking I'm out that's right yeah yeah. and Tennant Tennant wanted to go yeah, yeah. didn't want to go <laughs> Matt Smith said yeah he wanted he was staying and then he was suddenly yeah, out yeah and Capaldi it looks like series ten could be his last, which I hope I hope it isn't because I as much as we sort of rag on the the, the new series a bit, uh, we ragged on series, series nine. nine a bit, so. We did, um, you know, Capaldi was outstanding in it, and mm. I'd love to see him do two more years. Two more years. Bring back Capaldi. Don't hesitate. So that's our uh, top five. What the fuck <coughs> moments? Uh, can you pluck anything? Any sort of common thread? That runs through the mark. A lot of these are based on our memories, aren't they? Seeing Tenth Planet Part Four, apart from the animated version, but I just sort of cast my mind back to saying, well, that is in my mind 
the the stroke of brilliance that kept the show going. And if mm. I was a viewer back then, not knowing what the hell was going on, I would be at home with my baked beans and toast on my lap, screaming out, Cor blimey, what the <coughs> fuck just happened then? <laughs> Do it in Welsh, Mark. Cor blimey, what the fuck just happened then? Uh, for me, I think, um, it, uh, particularly the last couple, preys on my own, uh, the, the series preyed on my own anxieties uh, uh, now and, and when I was a, a child. Um I had a great fear of cancer uh, in the 80s. I mean, there was many, many a biopic about people who had cancer and sort of, you know, and, and, and something like uh, Seeds of Doom or, or, or The Ark in Space has that sort of element of something alien and hostile from within consuming you and, and killing you and, and, you know, stripping you of your humanity, humanity yeah. and your identity. So that, there's, a, there's an element of that. So... Uh, but it would be interesting to hear uh, our audience what what other people uh, think of their top five or just anything that sort of left them scratching their head or punching the air or punching themselves as you said earlier. Uh, so again, you know, we've got all the uh, the social media outlets. You can you can just send us something and we might we might read it out in the future episode. Absolutely, yeah. Please do. We'd love to hear what your uh, thoughts are. So uh, that's our top five. That's our sort of easing into uh, the 2016 podcasting mark. Done? Yes. And uh, we'll just segue on to our next segment. Rob, do you realise that this episode uh, we're recording now and will be going out on people's feeds shortly is our 50th episode? 50? 50. What? Even including my boring monologue about the 50th anniversary? I count those as uh, cutaways. Uh, they're non-canon. Non-canon. Oh, my, my thoughts and emotions that I put into it are non-canon. We also apologise as well for not doing a New Year's Eve special this year. Uh, just time got away with us, but we'll make sure we'll do something. We'll prepare for it now. Mm. For 2016, end of the year. Let's not give it up just yet. In celebration, in air quotes, uh, of reaching 50 episodes, we thought we'd uh, wheel out a, a segment that we haven't done for a while but we know is very popular with at least three of you. So, Rob, are you ready? Wheel out the gimp suit. We're going to drag from the archives. <laughs> I'm zipping my gimp suit up now. <laughs> so, uh, Mark, we have... Uh, well, you have, actually. You've done all the hard yards, and uh, I'm going to benefit from it. You've uh, culled your impressive collection of uh, DWB. Issue four uh, onwards, people. Issue four <laughs> onwards. Uh, uh, and uh, we are going to be reading out some choice choice articles from that storied decade, the 1980s. Uh, would you like me to read out the first one? Hit me. Yeah, I'm going to hit you, Mark. This is a beauty. Now, the 80s, uh, DWB, let's just say that they, they, they were not fond of J&T. They were not fond. So you can understand, you can understand the... Uh, the 20-point type that they've used uh, for the heading on this one. This is DWB, the front page, the front cover. The lead-in to DWB 52, March 1988. Now, they've used a quote from, uh, I th- well, from the Doctor, actually, in 1881, so it must be the gunfighter, surely. I thought it was the Evil of the Daleks, isn't it? Uh, well, you've probably seen it more recently than me, but... I don't know, 1881. <laughs> you keep talking, I'll look it up on Wikipedia. Go for it. The quote is, We are at the dawning of a new age, an age of peace and prosperity, the Doctor, 1881. Mark thinks it's evil. I think it's the gunfighters. I think Mark is right. I think it's Malcolm Turnbull, actually. I can't speak about Malcolm Turnbull, as you know. So let's just move on. Uh, no more J and T in uh, must be thirty-two point type. And there's a, there's a beautiful black and white photo of, of uh, a bearded J and T. Uh, 
a, a Stephen uh, Nathan Turner, a, a John Nathan Moffat, for instance. I love Doctor Who emblazoned on the T-shirt. He's got a wonderful pair of shoes there. Nice heels. They're Cuban heels, aren't they? So it's got I, heart, heart, 80s Doctor Who logo. And his, his pants bunching in awkward places. So that's all right. We'll move on. Gary, take me. <laughs> I think he's pointing to Gary. Uh, new producer for season 26, it says. So oh, let's yeah. just strap strap in and strap on for this one. John Nathan Turner is leaving Doctor Who at the end of the next season. And that's official! Uh, exclamation mark. Furthermore, Doctor Who will be continuing on to its 26th season. And the new head of drama and serials, Mark Shivas will appoint the 10th producer of Doctor Who before the end of the year, probably in the spring to enable him to trail the last couple of stories. Nathan Turner's official statement to friends about his departure is that he is moving on to a quote-unquote another project and then see movie news inside. But it is strongly rumoured that BBC One controller Jonathan Powell has finally succumbed to public pressure and sacked him only four months after DWB launched Operation Who, our campaign for better standards in Doctor Who. Sidebar, a bit like Mary Whitehouse is asking for better standards in Doctor Who. Uh, the news also comes just weeks after Mark Shivers took over as head of drama from Powell, and so it seems likely that he played a major part in the affair. John Nathan Turner is planning a somewhat self-indulgent swan song, and has enlisted the services of many of his friends on the production side of his final story, including ex-Who secretary Sarah Lee as assistant floor manager, Gary Downey as production manager, uh, Jane Wellesley as director's assistant. Meanwhile, BBC Enterprises has been busy assuring associated merchandise manufacturers that Doctor Who will run for at least two more series and Sylvester McCoy has already been contracted to play the Doctor up to the end of season 26. Now, the type gets much smaller at this point, so I'll just let me <laughs> squint. Since the main objective of Operation Who has been reached, i.e. the appointment of a new producer, this sounds very much like a victory lap by Gary Levy, uh, albeit a season later than hoped for, the campaign ha- can, thankfully, be laid to rest. But we still recommend that you write to the new head of drama series and serials, suggesting ways in which you think the series can be improved and who you think would be best suited to reviving and thus restoring the credibility of Doctor Who in the eyes of the great general public. Send your polite and preferably typed letter to Mr. Mark Shivers, head of drama of series and serials, BBC TV Centre, Wood Lane, London, W127RJ. Now, uh, sidebar, that building no longer exists. Move on, people. And Mark Shivers doesn't exist either. Has he shuffled off, has he? Yep. That's sad. Uh, Having produced the award-winning The Six Wives of Henry VIII for the BBC a few years ago, Mr. Shivers clearly knows how to achieve excellence in television, and so it is reassuring to know that Doctor Who's future now rests in his hands uh, ellipsis. That article got one thing right. Only one. The show will be continuing on to season 26 and that's it. That's it. Then it was uh, uh, blindfolded, gagged, thrown in the back of a uh, uh, a minivan and then thrown uh, off a cliff. But the door was still open to that cliff. <laughs> a letter writing campaign of 1400 has basically uh, turned uh, BBC higher management's opinion. Basically said JNT no more. Well, yes. Now, uh, Mark, you'll be moving on to our next uh, item. My article is from DWB55 in June 1988. This is a few months before season 25 had aired. And it says, movie date set, premiere, 
late 89. Doctor Who, the movie, consultant Ian Levine has been given official confirmation of the revised production dates, which will culminate in the release of the long-awaited film in the cinema in either the autumn or Christmas of 1989. The final draft of the script was completed in mid-June, and the financing of the film is in place, which effectively means that Coast to Coast now have all the required finances with no risk of the project falling through. More good news is that the film is going to be distributed by one of the best-known worldwide movie distributors, whom we hope to reveal exclusively next issue. Technically, key personnel have now been appointed, i.e. visual effects designers, etc, etc. Commences in September, October, with shooting starting in January or February 1989. As for the Doctor himself, the producers are keeping tight-lipped about their choice, intending to keep everybody in suspense right up to the last possible minute. And we're still in suspense, aren't we? Uh, 26 years later. Yeah, cryogenic suspension, actually, the way we're going at the moment, aren't we? Yes, well. And that particular time, the the movie uh, was was biggish news, wasn't it? There was uh, just constant articles in DWB about it. There was more articles about it than natural financing of the thing. <laughs> All right. And now from the same issue, again in 42-point type, uh, issue 55, June 1988, Time Lord Mania! Exclamation mark. Exclamation mark. Get on board for Time Lord Mania, folks. The most unlikely pop hit this summer, Doctor in the TARDIS, has reached the lauded number one position in the official Gallup chart just three weeks after release. The song, Ron Grainer's original Doctor Who theme entwined with shades of 70s number one hits Rock and Roll, which originally reached number seven in America, and Blockbuster by Gary Glitter... <laughs> and the suite respectively has also reached pole position in the 12 inch and independent charts and taken everyone by surprise not least the glaswegian time lords themselves who formed the group's name especially for the record and have previously released singles under the guises of disco 2000 the jams the justified agents of muma and klf the latter of which is the label of this latest single the song dethroned the popular Wet 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 remake of With a Little Help From My Friends, recorded to raise money for Esther Ranson's Childline, as well as holding off competition from Britain's most popular teeny bop band, Brass, making the Time Lord's achievement all the more remarkable. As a sidebar, I used to like Brass. When Will I Be Famous is uh, is quite good. Really? I owe you nothing. Ooh, uh, nothing yeah, at that all. Yeah. awful. <laughs> the 80s started so well musically, and towards the end, drum machines, really bad. But, you know, it takes all sorts. Well, I have no taste, as we all know. Uh, the previous biggest-selling version of Ron Grainer's famous score was in November 1978, when Mankind took their disco Doctor Who to number 25 on the hit parade. They've actually used the word hit parade? God. <laughs> Releases of recent official TV versions have done less successfully, with Peter Howe's radiophonic arrangement reaching 105th position in 1980, and Dominic Glynn's failing to even dent the top 200... Would you even bother to have a top 200? I mean, come on. Which explains the BBC's reluctance to release Kef McCulloch's current version. Although the popularity of Doctor in the TARDIS will now almost certainly prompt the BBC into imminently converting it to vinyl. Uh, well, they did. They included it as part of that 25th anniversary album. There's any way you're going to get your hands on a uh, copy of that uh, atrocity. Legally? Yeah. Time Lord Mania. I hated that song, Doctor in the TARDIS. Really? Yeah, because people kept playing it too. <laughs> And every time I'd walk into a room, I hate it. You wouldn't have a little dance to it? No, I was cringing in embarrassment. Wouldn't, wouldn't vogue to it or anything like that? We went for a drive today and... Uh, uh, with, with, uh, I went for a drive with the family today and um, every station you seem to turn on, there's Justin Bieber's latest number one, which is an attack, I think, on his ex-girlfriend, Selena Gomez. 
the fact that I've got two girls, uh, two daughters is the only reason I know this. And it's it's just a sort of a passive aggressive rant against his ex-girlfriend and it's really embarrassing. So I assume that that's the 2016 version of uh, Doctor in the TARDIS. And that's passing as music these days, is it? What can you say? <laughs> what can you say that doesn't involve the lawyers in, in a few months? All right, Mark. All right, so let's move, let's let's break eye contact with uh, Doctor in the TARDIS. Yes, no. Although uh, KLF did do right with uh, Last Train to Trans Central, Justified and Ancient. No idea what you're talking about, frankly. I was strictly, strictly, strictly top forty, and there was I had no access to any sort of alternative radio FM radio stations. It was strictly country, country and not western, country and western, but a, a country t- a radio blues brothers. <laughs> Country and Western. Strictly a uh, country-based radio station that just played mainstream <laughs> stuff. So I, who, what you're talking about, I had no idea until about 1990. So, We'll move on from the Time Lords, <laughs> thankfully. Please, this please. Is, this is from DWB 55, uh, June 1988. Uh, again, before season 25 has aired. A slightly smaller font than the uh, font you were reading from before. It says, BBC shows signs of investing new confidence in who? Uh, famous last words, really. The success of the Time Lord's Doctor Who-inspired record appears to have at least uh, opened the BBC's eyes to the fact that they have a valuable commodity on their hands, which has been all too neglected in recent years. If the chart-topping success of their recent budget video releases hadn't convinced them of this fact, then Doctor in the TARDIS certainly has, because Doctor Who now seems to have earned a sudden wave of respect throughout the corporation it is interesting to speculate because that's all they can do because <laughs> that's because this whole thing is speculation and fabrication uh, it is interesting to speculate for example whether the Beeb would have granted Doctor Who such an immediate remount uh, following the recent asbestos scare without all the recent external publicity yet the most positive sign yet of their attitude to the series was given in an off-the-record quote by head of drama series and serials Mark Shivers who recently said that uh, Doctor Who, I quote, is safe for a couple of years, end quote, exclamation mark. Furthermore, it is becoming increasingly apparent that Shivers is taking his time in selecting the 10th producer because he actually appears to care that John Nathan Turner's successor will be the right person for the job. It's like Fantasy Island, isn't it? It, it is really. It's it's the equivalent of what is now going on in Doctor Who uh, at the moment in between se- seasons, isn't it? Where yeah. any old tripe is trotted out as fact when it may mm-hmm. basically it's baseless rumour and, and gossip and innuendo. I mean, the only reason why uh, Greater Show was saved was the skills of John Nathan Turner getting it remounted. It wasn't the corporation. The corporation actually said to him, cancel it. He didn't want to have a 10-episode 25th anniversary, so he mm. remounted it in a car park and... Thankfully, it was a circus story, so it worked beautifully. Do you think, at this point, DWB is fabricating this stuff, or does it genuinely believe fabricating it to get its name up in lights amongst fandom as a as a source of you know information uh, separate to DWM, or or do they believe what they're they're trotting out? I think it's more fabrication and exaggeration, because mm-hmm. let's be honest, DWM was JNT's mouthpiece at that time. So the news was spun by JNT, mm. where this magazine uh, certainly wasn't spun, or spun in the dark arts, let's be honest. Uh, it's spun in a different direction. It's spun in a different direction, which uh, the more of the fan who were disenchanted with the series at the time. I suppose it was an, you know, well, I mean, an increasing number of fans who, who were plugged into the fanzine network. The next one 
is from DWB55 in June 1988. This actually, I think, reflects us. It says, the headline, We're Barking Mad! Exclamation mark. The following item appeared on ITV's teletext. It's like Commodore 64 graphics put on a, on a telly, wasn't it? Well, you know what, Mark? The, the world is turning full circle. We're now getting our, capable of getting our internet through the television. Yes, that's exactly it. So bring back the teletext service for the internet, eh? The following item appeared on the ITV's teletext chatterbox page. Uh, quote... The BBC, who gets even more mail from Angry Doctor Who fans than their own RSVP TV letters page, has a less than flattering name for the correspondence we hear. The collective noun for these ardent followers of the sci-fi series who bombard the corporation daily with requests for repeats, etc., is now known as Barkers. Why, quote, because most of them are barking mad, a BBC source reveals. DWB has done some research in an attempt to determine exactly where this nasty term was derived from, and we weren't surprised to discover that it originates from the production office itself, or rather producer John Nathan Turner, who apparently dreamt up this odious expression many years ago before he fell out of favour with most of fandom. Exclamation mark. Therefore, any complaints concerning this unpleasant slur should be directed to either Nathan Turner himself or to his department head, Mr. Mark Shivers. DWB reminds me a lot of the centre-left papers here in Australia who took no small delight in sticking the boot into a former Prime Minister, a former immediate Prime Minister, uh, at every turn. There's... Um, no, no small uh, misstep or mis, you know, more misstatement was uh, was leapt upon with glee, uh, and it's it's sort of mirrored here with DWB. I mean, you know, of all the petty things to fill up a column with, uh, it's an alleged slur, allegedly spoken, uh, allegedly from the production office, allegedly from John Nathan Turner. Well, that wasn't allegedly because Richard Marsden in his biography had a uh, chapter. Was it called Barkers or Durable Barkers? <laughs> I just cast my eye down a bit further and it says video news uh, although no date has been set the deadly assassin is hotly tipped as the next BBC video Doctor Who title though whether it will, it will be subject to the censor's scissors remains to be seen priced at £9.99 the five doctors and the 60 minute or 60 second version of Brain and Morbus will be re-released simultaneously at this budget price and uh, there's a photo underneath that of John Scott Martin uh, sitting in a, in the bottom half of a Dalek casing, look uh, looking completely mad. It says John Scott Martin, veteran Dalek. <laughs> He's just off off to the off to Centrelink to get his uh, his pension payment, his fortnightly pension. <laughs> oh dear. What's next, Rob? The next story that we're going to be looking at is uh, from DWB fifty six, uh, July nineteen eighty eight. Uh, headed, Paul Stone, quote, rejected Who producership. Further to our news item last month, which suggested that the BBC are looking for the right person for the post of 10th Doctor Who producer. A reliable BBC source has disclosed the job was recently offered to Paul Stone, the man behind many renowned BBC fantasy series such as Moondial, Alien in the Family and Box of Delights, which starred the late Patrick Troughton. Apparently, Stone initially warmed to the idea of being the next Doctor Who producer until he was told of the extracurricular jobs he would also be expected to do, such as acting as publicist, attending US conventions, quality controller of merchandise, etc., and subsequently allegedly turned the offer down on the grounds that the job of a TV producer should be just that, i.e. producing. In any event, it is unlikely Paul Stone would have finally accepted as he has since left the BBC to go freelance. Now, the article also produces a short list of... Uh, 
candidates or potential candidates or you know it's the usual plucking from the air of a bunch of names i suppose so the shortlist reads mm. paul stone was just one of the names of the producers presently employed by the bbc series and serials department which mark shivers takes over in august and whoever is selected as the next doctor who producer will most likely be one of them i like how they say most likely they are jonathan jonathan alwyn ruth boswell michael chapman ron craddock terence dix george galaccio gerard glaster Evgeny Gridnev, John Harris, Sally Head, Paul Knight, Leonard Lewis, Geraint, or is it Geraint? Geraint. Geraint Morris, John Nathan Turner, sick, uh, Caroline Alton, Ken Riddington, Bill Sellers, Julia Smith, John Waters, Michael Waring, Terence Williams, and Betty Willingdale. You just read off their uh, staff producers. That's everybody. That's everyone, is it? That was left at the BBC at that time. This is a list of people still working here for the moment. This is it. You could just hear the noose being tightened, couldn't you? I think in the JNT bio, it mentioned that there was no evidence that Paul Stone was actually offered the uh, producership. Mm. But looking at that list, um, Terence Dix, he would have been interesting. George Galacio, he was offered it before Nathan Turner, so he, he, he turned it down. Mm, not likely to accept it again. Or accept it this time around, that, no. that, that many years later. Mm. Julia what? Smith did EastEnders. Yes. But what it really needed was uh, a young trailblazer. Mm. Terence Dix would have been uh, probably a great uh, a script editor, yeah. but it needed a, a young trailblazing producer like like a Hinchcliffe to come in and really shake it up. Someone with the, 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 the sense and sensibilities of a... Uh, who was the last script editor of the classic series? Cartmel. Yes, a, a, a producer in that mould, I suppose. Yeah. So, someone, you know, with, as you say, a firebrand uh, with new ideas and, and new ways of doing things. So not yeah. to be, not to be. Now, Mark, I think you've got the last article. Is that right? Looking at that page as well, at the bottom, it says 1987, read the survey results inside. I don't think I want to venture into that... Uh, <laughs> that swamp? <laughs> into those pages. <laughs> no, no. Uh, the last one will go in with who helps boost Beeb's profits? BBC Un Enterprises have announced record profits for the last 12 months following a bonanza, bonanza, a bonanza year of video releases sales of which shot up by 80% on the previous 12 months and which saw Doctor Who and Faulty Towers scoring as the most successful BBC video series, although their single biggest surprise success was the chart-topping Watch With Mother video. Uh, the BBC is still the largest supplier to American public television and last year Doctor Who helped raking, rake in 27,500,000 quid in overseas sales, up well, up 14% on the previous year. Co-productions for 1987-88 were worth 15 million, paving the way for Doctor Who to be tendered out by the 90s. And the profits could mean an extra 20 million quid ploughed back into next year's programs, although, as usual, Doctor Who will only see a proportional share of it after it has been evenly spread over the entire corporation. However, it is still expected to be a considerable amount and could up Doctor Who's present annual budget from $1.5 million to $2 million for 14 episodes. $2 million quid for 14 episodes. I mean, that's insane. That's that's an, that's the annual budget, not per episode. Jeez. It's being made on one point. Uh, one and a half million pounds a year, Doctor Who, and it was making how much? Tw- allegedly, twenty-seven million in sales. Overseas sales. If you're looking at those figures, you'd be going, "Why am I cancelling?" If you're looking at it from a purely financial mm. perspective, it doesn't make sense. But you know, oh, there are other things happening, and, and as we saw, the the BBC didn't collapse with uh, without the, the Doctor uh, Doctor Who's um, 
uh, in, in you know financial input during the nineties. So no, uh, that's it, right. it would have been a minor hiccup, and then they off they went to do whatever they did do. Exactly. From a sci-fi perspective, as Red Dwarf, really. Yeah. Well, oh well, that's that was their choice. That, that's the way they went to. Well, they decided to go. So good on them. So that's uh, that's our uh, our trawl through uh, drag from the archives for this uh, episode. Is that right, Mark? That's right. We will do it again in a couple of months, uh, soon as I've recovered from trawling through those particular issues. Although I am tempted to go back and check the 1987 readers' results. Go with God, Mark. Go with God. <laughs> Thank you everyone for joining us for episode 50 of 42 to Doomsday. Can you believe like we've done 50 episodes? No, I'm, I'm frankly surprised that we've, <laughs> we've, we've, not surprised that we're here, but I'm surprised that we've reached 50 as, as an actual number, as an actual number. Uh, thank you everybody for your uh, support and downloads over those 50 episodes. It uh, means a lot. As one of the uh, four podcasts in Australia. We used to be the only one, didn't we? For about two weeks. Two weeks, but you know, inspiration, inspiring. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's nice to be almost a mentor to... No, we're not mentors, but anyway. We're mentors. (laughs) Now, speaking of other podcasts, again, Rob, I've been unfaithful and tarting around. I'll be appearing on the debut episode of the Doctor Who show, which will be on at the end of January. So check that out. Look, Australia Day is nearly upon us. So I think we'll end this episode with a a track from uh, Mr. David Bowie. And it's a track that I think is pretty synonymous with Australia. So, I've been Mark. And I've been Rob. Godspeed, David Bowie. Dance the
listen to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.